Hello, I am Sebastian Marshall. I am the CEO of Ultraworking. This is the Ultraworking Podcast. We are about to have an unusual show. It's going to be quite unusual in a couple of different ways. And I don't mean unusual like, you know, strange or bizarre. I mean unusual just like it's not typical. I don't think it's the type of thing you would normally hear on a podcast for a variety of reasons. But, you know, way back in episode number one, the Holy Grail, we're really taking apart morale responsiveness and we're looking at some cases of Sylvester Stallone staying up three days in a row with no sleep to write the Rocky screenplay and the mathematician Paul Erdős using amphetamines and the, you know, the cyclic feedback effects of how these things can, can ruin your body and the corresponding depressions and crashes. Like, we do the real stuff over here. This isn't like a pump-up, get-motivated show. We want, we're interested in peak performance and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll flip over you know, whatever kind of rocks that might have worms underneath them uh, to get there from time to time. It doesn't mean we need to be edgy or, or controversial all the time. Plenty of just good sound research and guidelines and practices, plenty of lessons from engineering and mathematics and plenty of straightforward stuff about workflows and technology. And yeah, a lot of it's just fairly straightforward. Some of it's somewhat, you know, could be edgy or controversial. Um, we're not going out of our way to be edgy or controversial, but if we want to be honest and explore things, we might need to be from time to time, and we're doing so today. So I want to make a contract with you. I don't think this will actually fly, but we'll see. I think this is the first time. This isn't even the unusual thing. This is me having some fun before we get started. I would like to make a contract with you, and if you've studied even a little bit of contract law, you know that it doesn't have to be a piece of paper that's signed. It's just offer consideration and acceptance. So here's the contract that I'm making with you, uh, if you will. So I'm offering you, and the consideration is that I'm going to give you like a max honest, interesting show. I'm going to explore a couple very difficult, interesting points. And in response for that, the consideration I want back is the, the no out of context quoting me and no summarizing me without understanding. Right? So don't even summarize me unless you're darn sure you understand. Don't interpret and summarize, and certainly don't quote me out of context, because I'm going to be not filtered, I'm going to be not censored, and that's the deal. So by listening to this show, that constitutes your acceptance of this contract. And some lawyers are listening like, wait, that is, huh, I wonder if there's a, huh, huh. And it depends what country, what jurisdiction you're in, could this actually be binding? Now, I think it'd be a terrible world if this actually happened all the time, and, and people could say, hey, you can't, can't quote me without, <laughs> you know, without, uh, you know, whatever, but but maybe not. Maybe out of context quoting is is a plague, um, and and out of context uh, summarizing or missummarizing is a plague. And I don't know. Maybe we, maybe this would be okay. But whether we've now entered into a legally binding contract or not is up to the courts. But you're at least morally agreeing. You're not going to quote me out of context or missummarize me on this show because I'm going to cover some difficult ground in like a pro-social, hopefully useful sort of way. But might get a little edgy. Not because I want it to be edgy, just because the subject matter is inherently edgy. I want to explain a phenomenon and contextualize a phenomenon that um, only happens in a small percentage of the population, uh, but it's a very important part of the population. And I want you to understand it, know what it means, know how to navigate it, think about it, think about your defaults and your biases around there. And I just want you to understand it and have some words for it. And uh, it could be a little edgy, but we just made a contract. Um, you're not going to quote me out of context. You're not going to missummarize me. I, I know all the lawyers, because a lot of lawyers follow ultra-working or, or popular. Like, is that actually in it? It's not for consideration and acceptance. It's an oral. Yeah, huh. Can you do that at scale? Is that... <laughs> I, I hope we don't find out. Don't quote me out of context, all right? So here we go. Let's quote from Tim Grover. To get us started, this was the uh, trainer, the strength and conditioning trainer of Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, among other people. So he's worked with uh, two of the top athletes um, of all time um, among basketball players in, in the National Basketball Association. Most people think Michael Jordan is number one of all time, really just an incredible athlete and competitor. And Grover, in his book, Relentless, uh, he, you know, kind of just, it's a very kind of philosophical book. It's not about how to run faster or jump higher, really just kind of philosophically explores what it's like to, to look to perform at that level um, and get some of those insights. One of Grover's concepts is he talks about, even among good performers, he has this, this hierarchy, he calls it a cooler. That's somebody that can get the job done, somebody else makes the plan, but they can play a supporting role and do a good job. There's the closer, that's somebody that you know, takes the last shot at the end of the game, you know, has the heroics. You know, most people would think that David Ortiz 
um, the, the really fearsome hitter in American baseball for the Red Sox or you know Kobe Bryant for the Los Angeles Lakers in basketball, they would think that person's a closer, but that's not quite right. In Grover's conception, there's a higher level above closer. Closer is somebody that can be in the spotlight, take the last shot and whatever, but above that in Grover's concept is a cleaner, a cleaner. Better than a closer to be a cleaner. That's a person that handles everything, handles all the details, and some of the patterns are actually kind of inverted, right? So a lot of times people think of a, a you know top athlete as somebody's like hyped up and you know let's go get them, right? And 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 Grover's like no, usually they're very cool. They're not expending you know emotional energy. You know there's like some aspects of solitude a little bit. You know it's it's kind of controversial. So you make some distinctions, not controversial, counterintuitive. It's a little bit counterintuitive how among really, really good and the very best, um, actually some of the, the things invert, right? So a cooler is somebody that's like pretty chilled out and not leading and taking responsibility for everything. You have a closer who might be like hyped um, and, and really emotional, really intense, and then they're willing to step up and take a shot and be a leader. But then again, at the highest levels of performance, people get very cold again, cleaner. So there's, he has all kinds of observations about that. Just bear that in mind when I use the word cleaner. This is, this is Grover's concept from his book. Right. So let's quote some Tim Grover from his book, Relentless, Michael Jordan and Kobe Bryant, among other people's trainer. And uh, this is what Grover said about criticism and criticizing people. This is what Grover said. Cleaners will just get in your face and announce that you fucked up. They're completely desensitized to criticism and blame, and they expect you to be the same. To you, it feels like an attack. To them, it feels like a couple of guys working out a situation. Their confidence level is so high that they have no problem admitting when something has gone wrong, end quote. So this is what we're going to talk about on this show, is that phenomenon. Because this is something I didn't understand as a kid, that sometimes, and, and even as a young adult, you know, I, I think in my 20s I didn't understand this, a lot of times somebody that is a, a really good performer, um, that's really skilled and really talented, um, will say something that might just seem like very blunt and sometimes nasty to you. Like, hey, you, I mean, what Grover said, you fucked up, <laughs> right? Announce, they will get in your face and announce that you fucked up. Um, uh, pardon, pardon the language. I probably should have caveated that in the beginning. Not too much swearing. I'm just quoting Grover here. So what, what is this phenomenon? Now, now, certainly there's mean people and nasty people and bullies and stuff in the world. That's very bad. Um, I believe in pro-sociality, amity, treating people well. Um, I'm also like not actually that hardcore about getting on people's cases. I'm a big positive reinforcement and cheerfulness sort of person. Um, actually, ironically, uh, I'm only that level of intense, blunt, direct, verging on nasty with people I really like and trust where there's a very good relationship between us. So, you know, if I meet somebody out in public, I don't, I don't know, whatever, if I was doing something for a a university and they asked me to come critique some business thing or tech thing or whatever. I've done a lot of things with universities. Uh, and, and a student was kind of getting something wrong. I'd be really nice to them. I'd be like, hey, like, all right, can see you worked on this. Good try. You know, I'd think about this and that. I'd be really nice, right? Now, let's say a student followed up with me a couple times. You know, it's like, say it's a young guy, uh, you know, is a programmer and wants to learn some business stuff. Said, hey, can I shoot an email to you? I said, sure send me an email. It's long. I'm like, hey man, don't send me such long emails. Read this book, do these things. They actually get back to me. I read the book, here's my notes, and I did the things. Oh, okay, wow. If that happens a few times, I get some trust. At that point, when I get on the phone with a person, if we get a hop on a social call, and they're like, hey, here's my new thing. I'm like, dude, this is a fucking disaster. What are you thinking? You are you, are you high? What are you smoking? Like, what, this is terrible. That's actually when I'm very friendly with people, is when I'll talk like that. And you know, among my social circle, this is how a lot of us talk to each other. And it's like very friendly and we all have each other's backs, right? Um, but I don't do this with strangers or with somebody I know or with somebody that's junior at the company. And I won't do it at all uh, internally on the team until like somebody that I'm working with on the team here at Ultra Working like knows that we like get along and like each other and respect each other. I'm, I absolutely don't go bulldog on people unless there's a high level of respect and regard and they kind of make it known that they respond to that, right? So... This is absolutely not how we are when we talk to each other internally, uh, except for when we're really like crushing it on projects and into really good accord and harmony, right? So it's a little counterintuitive. Among my social circle, this is how the majority of us talk to each other when one of us is screwing up. 
Um, and if you're not in any social circles like that, then like what kind of social circles are you in? Is anybody, anybody getting some big stuff done? I don't mean that in a hurtful way because not everybody wants what I'm doing and what my friends want to do and, and, and be and, and such like that. And we're also very nice to each other too and very complimentary and very praising. So I don't want to give you the wrong impression. But in order to explain this, Tim Grover has his concept of the cooler the closer, the cleaner, and he's trying to make a distinction between what are the levels between somebody that can, you know, rise under pressure and be a leader and kind of be in front of the crowd and somebody that can really just like get the whole organization running well. He's trying to like make a distinction there, so he needed to name it something different. He needed some unusual naming to get people to think about it. I have one of my own. It's not exactly the same as Grover's. It's a little bit different than Grover's, but I have my own kind of uh, metaphorical description because, you know, it's a metaphor. The word cleaner, these... The, the people, Michael Jordan is not probably literally, you know, mopping the floor most nights. You know, he's probably not taking the trash out, maybe. I mean, he would if he needed to, but, you know, that's, that's not what Grover means. It's a metaphor, right? I have my own metaphor. It's a bit unusual, and I fully grant that it's unusual. And for me, uh, one of the things that I like a lot, people I like a lot, people I like to associate with are people that I call equestrians, right? And this is a Roman Republic era metaphor, so it's a couple thousand years old. And in the Roman Republic, there was many, 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 many different social classes and ranks and designations. And because our world is so different from theirs, we can't even fully explain or, or, or understand it in modern terms unless you go through like thousands of pages of history books, right? So like what's the, you know, status of a Roman protectorate that's kind of under Roman control or like a tribal group or like a city council. And there's all kinds of different designations and statuses and whatever. And it gets really complicated. I simplify this um, to just, roughly speaking, three groups that I, that I would call plebeian, equestrian, and patrician. This is internal social circle stuff, and we got a binding contract that I'm not being quoted out of context, by the way. So anyway, you, Sebastian, said blah, blah, blah. No, I didn't. Like, no, that's, like, make sure you understand, all right? But generally speaking, you know, Rome was SPQR, the Senate and people of Rome, right? So there was a senatorial class. That, that really kind of ran a lot of the show in Rome. Most of the political life and most of the military life uh, were run by senators. Um, those were the wealthiest people. They had estates, and there was a variety of laws that they were, like, not allowed to do various types of business. Um, you know, they weren't allowed to uh, do certain types of trade or banking or whatever. And I personally believe, as a historian, um, having looked at different parts of the world, I, I don't think this is naturally and inherently going to be the case everywhere. So later on, when you see uh, Middle Age um, and later uh, monarchy, where there's like the nobles, like don't do certain activities, don't do banking, they see it as beneath them or whatever. Um, like nobility everywhere sees, sees, you know, historical, literal nobility of patents and land grants and rights and whatever to, to rule in an aristocracy and a monarchy. Um, nobility everywhere doesn't do manual labor. They're, they're not into it. Um, maybe a couple of vague exceptions of like military ish aristocracies, but, but pretty much aristocracies never do manual labor. Um, aristocrats look down on that. But like not doing commerce and banking is not universally the case. You know, it happened to some extent with the samurai too, um, but, but doesn't always seem to happen. So I wonder to what extent, you know, some of these activities um, being prohibited later for dukes and earls and nobles later in the Middle Ages was from people copying the Roman model where it was legally prohibited presumably for some conflicts of interest reasons or design reasons in their government, who knows. Um, but anyway, senators couldn't, weren't supposed to do certain types of monetary activity, certain types of commercial activity. Other ones were like heavily frowned upon, though not prohibited. And so senators ran the show. Um, I tend to use the word patrician instead of senator here, both because of our current modern day usage. Uh, the word patr senator could, you know, there's, the, the job of senator still exists in a lot of the world. America has a Senate uh, that we have U.S. senators on, and that's not what I'm talking about. Um, and the word patrician also has this like very uh, well-established, incredibly powerful for a long time family, and it implies a certain set of uh, demeanors and mannerisms and preferences and whatnot. Um, patricians in Rome were the most ancient of the senatorial families that, that, that had levels of uh, respect and certain rights and prohibitions even over and beyond senators, right? So they were the, the, the real old guard of the, the, Roman, the Roman scene, 
right? Then on the bottom, you have the plebs, the plebeians. Hey, who doesn't love the plebs? Plebs are just great, right? Like, they do their thing, and, uh, you know, like, it's like normal life. It's like plebeian. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with being a plebe. It's all right. Being a Roman plebe was probably better than living in most of the rest of the world. It's great. It's great to be plebeian. Um, yeah, historically, the Roman writers didn't think very well of the plebs. They did not, you know, they tend to think that they were very short-term thinking, impulsive, change their opinions quickly, riot, you know, really in, source, uh, in search of being told lies to go do whatever. It was actually one of the major critiques of pure democracy is the fickleness of the crowd. Talk about the crowds they're typically talking about, the plebs, plebeian. Um, but then in between them, incredibly understudied in history, in my opinion, was the equestrian order. So equestrians were not senator, senatorial rank, they were uh, not plebs, not plebeian rank, they were between them. And in the original Roman setup, they were expected to be the horsemen, the knights, the cavalry of the Roman military. So where there weren't that many senators, and the senators would, would sometimes have like an officer's role or a diplomat's role um, in the armies, the equestrians did a lot of the difficult heavy lifting um, on horseback. Um, and on, on some of the, you know, cavalry was incredibly important in the ancient world. Um, free plebeians would be the, you know, the foot soldiers um, of the Roman military typically, and the equestrians would be the knights. So the equestrians also handled a ton of the banking, trade, commerce. Um, and later on, you know, when equestrians would get very successful, either, um, you know, serving in the military or uh, commercially, they'd oftentimes get promoted to senatorial rank, but some of them didn't like it. They didn't even want to become senators. So sometimes they'd be like enrolled in the Senate. Um, you know, uh, I think it was the censor, this was the census, censor, that's what that's from, would, hey, we've assessed that your wealth levels and whatever you've done is enough that we're going to enroll you in the Senate. And the question would be like, look, I like, I like my trading, banking, horseback, kind of living a little rough. You know, y'all got good manners in the Senate. I'm not into that. Like, leave me alone. I don't want to get enrolled. So it's kind of some funny stories of people like not wanting to get promoted to senatorial rank from Roman times. There's all sorts of other different social classes and relations in Rome. I'm greatly simplifying, right? But I, I do think, and whenever I mention this to somebody who knows even a little bit of history, they go, oh yeah, that makes sense, that you could t say today there's patricians, equestrians, and, and plebs out in the world. And one of the reasons that I'm so comfortable putting this, this out there is I think the vast majority of people that listen to this are probably an equestrian um, or somebody that at least is amenable uh, to that way of thinking and acting out in the world. Um, so most plebs outnumber equestrians by a lot, um, by a lot, and you automatically got enrolled in the equestrian order, by the way, if you were sufficiently successful in a number of different forms and facets. Um, simplifying greatly. But anybody could become a knight. It was like not a big deal. Getting in the Senate was like a little harder. Getting in the patricians was impossible without marrying um, into it. And even then you were treated kind of skeptically if you're only like a, if you're in question and married a patrician, like even your kids would be like, oh, he's like a half patrician or whatever, right? Um, or like senator, non-patrician senator. They're like, oh, we don't know. A little bit of, a little bit of new blood there. We're not, we're not so sure about that, right? Um, but yeah, so the plebs outnumber the equestrians uh, tremendously. Um, and that makes sense that most of the media and the television programming and, um, you know, most of the things for consumption, most of the advertising is, is all marketed very plebeian. Um, you know, so uh, I would contend that an advertisement that was like, joy of cola, joy of fun, joy of cola, joy of... Like, this is very plebeian. This doesn't register with equestrians. We're metaphorically speaking out on horseback and doing business and doing engineering and inventing things and building foundries and granaries and figuring out shipping and boats and docks and stuff like that. And, you know, we're like uh, doing our part to like, uh, you know, keep everything running while the, you know, Senate's passing the laws and the decrees and setting the culture and the mores, the patricians, Senate patricians are, uh, you know, really kind of ruling over the, the political scene. Like we just run the world um, or like the, difficult, gritty, technical parts of the world. Um, so that's my little metaphor. And, you know, again, you can move from plebeian to equestrian very easily um, if it's, I would say in my metaphorical usage of it, it's a mindset and demonstrated pattern of action. It doesn't, doesn't swing on how much 
how much cash you have or, or your, uh, your connections or something, those will come quickly if you're really good at what you do. Um, and you know, you kind of get some of the mindsets down. Uh, I don't have a rigorous definition of this per se. Um, but the metaphor is fairly straightforward and yeah, where's joy of cola, joy of fun, you know, advertising might be a little bit plebeian. Um, people say, okay, what's patrician advertising look like? It's like, you've never seen it. You have never seen it. So having a little fun with this and quoting the last psychiatrist, um, now defunct blog by an anonymous psychiatrist who wrote a lot of psychoanalysis of advertisements and culture. And it's, uh, it's edgy. I'm not recommending it per se. It's a bit of a hoot. Um, it's some people like it a lot, but, uh, you know, the, uh, the last psychiatrist wrote about, you know, advertising, um, you know, wrote about advertising, um, and uh, in this article, Luxury Branding the Future Leaders of the World from November 2011, right, he said, you know, watches have the same problem diamond jewelry has. It better be beautiful enough to keep forever because if you try to sell it, you'll discover there is no secondary market for it. No one wants the necklace your ex had waiting for you when you got back from Cozumel. Turning, in, turning it into an heirloom keeps it out of the market and the supply stays reg regulated by the manufacturers, which I think is collusion, but I'm no lawyer. These ads can be seen in whatever rich people use to relax on Sunday afternoons, e.g. The Economist. And then he has a photo of an ad with a Patek Philippe and a father in a suit is on a phone and his boy is sitting on his work desk and his boy is wearing a sweater vest and it, you know, whatever. And then so he's commenting on it and this and says, this is a brilliant campaign for technical and artistic reasons. What is the brand that it conveys? Heirloom quality. The ads use black and white photos. We've been around a long time. Even the advertising campaign self-referentially broadcasts this. It has been the same since 1996, i.e. longer than a 40-year-old has been in the market for an expensive watch to notice it wasn't always thus, reinforcing longevity of the brand. I know you probably figure this ad isn't for you because you're not a railroad baron or a Rothschild, but ask yourself a question. Have you seen this ad? Most people, if you read The Economist, have, right? And so, he continues, the last psychiatrist, then it's for you. Time to learn why they know you better than you know yourself. The demographic for this ad isn't the Rothschilds or the 1%. They don't buy based on ads, and they don't need to be told what constitutes quality or authenticity. They can tell that's what boarding school was for. Everyone else is going to be need to be head over the head with the semiotics of quality. He has a photo of a Patek Philippe with stuff etched into it. I.e., see an ad campaign about those signifiers. Oh, I get it. This is a fancy watch. The target demographic is not the 1%. The target demographic is the aspirational 14%. They know they're supposed to like quality and goodness and etiquette and discretion, but no one ever taught them what those things look like. So when someone does point it out to them, they will go all in. End quote. Okay. Uh, we're having a bit of an edgy show here, right? So I think that... In Roman times, you're a Roman citizen, you got a specific amount of wealth, you got some dough, you got some gold denarii or whatever they were packing around back then, uh, you were automatically an equestrian. That gave you very few rights, actually. It gave you a lot of duties. Like you had to, if war started, you had to have a horse, and you got to bring your own equipment, you had to be the cavalry and whatever. Um, in the modern world, I don't think it's cash that gets you into the equestrian, or it doesn't hurt, certainly helps, maybe even some amount of it is necessary, uh, and it's a metaphor anyways, there's no actual equestrian order, um, but you see that breakdown by the last psychiatrist of like, hey, here's what, here's what it's like to be a patrician or a Rothschild uh, Patek Philippe watch, you know, it's a Something you, you know, it's forever in your family. You've made it. And it's like, no, no, no. I've spent a tiny little tiny bit of time in patrician society. Just a little bit. I think I'm amusing to patricians, by the way, which never hurts. Um, if you want to roll with that crowd a little bit, which I don't, by the way. But uh, I think I'm a little bit amusing. And, and having been in that world just a tiny, tiny, tiny little bit, I don't want to overstate it. It's like... I, I don't know. I don't know what people are wearing and buying and doing, but it's like not advertised in anything I've ever seen before, right? As for equestrians, yeah, sure. Some people like the, you know, upper middle class, lower upper class cars and watches and stuff, but but maybe much less so than you would think. I don't think it's like a smooth 
smooth gradient. I think you look at a Patek Philippe watch, I think uh, something that's really making it as a plebeian, it could be a wealthy, wealthy or successful plebeian, um, and especially today, it doesn't demarcate, like, is really into stuff like that. So you have these different backgrounds of people. Now, for me, an equestrian is, you know, like, what, what is it exactly, right? Um, and this is vague and hazy. It's hard to talk about. I'm trying to kind of point somewhat in the direction of it. And we're trying to understand just the criticism point. So in my world, right, so, like, among the plebs, who I'm not putting down at all, and I'm even probably overstating, and I don't think like this all the time, right? So this is where I put the out-of-context quoting disclaimer in the beginning. It's, I'm just trying to explore this one problem. I don't look at someone and go, oh, how plebeian. Like, I will if there's like a fried chicken advertisement for KFC or something, and people are like, oh, get that chicken. It's like, okay, that's plebeian advertising. Or if like two people are having an argument about something like really, really, really petty in mass culture about whether the Kardashians are good or bad, I'm like, well, it's this rather plebeian discussion over there. But I normally don't think like this. Certainly not to put down anybody. Um, equestrian sounds better than plebeian, I suppose. It sounds a little more quote-unquote badass. Not the point. Um, I'm really just trying to flag that there's a, a discreet, not discreet, not, 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 not easy to identify, but there are a, a group of people that think and act a little differently. And among those people, criticism, including very blunt criticism, is not seen as a bad thing, right? So, quoting Grover again, right, you want to know that a true sign of a cleaner, this is from his book Relentless, and his cleaner is like the highest level of performer, right? You want to know the true sign of a cleaner? He feels no pressure when he screws up and has no problem admitting when he's wrong and shouldering the blame. When a cooler, someone's just okay, when a cooler makes a mistake, he'll give you a lot of excuses but no solutions. When a closer makes a mistake, he finds someone else to blame. When a cleaner makes a mistake, he can look you in the eye and say, I fucked up kind of interesting. And in my experience, that's true. Um, it's, it, you know, you could just like, like, in, again, in my social circle, and, uh, you know, this is true universally on our team. When you screw something up, you're just like, oh, yeah, I screwed that up. I blew it. Right? And then you analyze why and you fix it. And it's like not a big deal. So I'm not going to uh, over extrapolate about the, the delicacies of uh, patrician society and navigating it and when you compliment or praise or don't or not. And I don't actually know, to tell you the truth. I'm, I'm pretty sure there's some advanced etiquette rules around how you talk and what you do and stuff and like, yeah, whatever. Um, don't know. Um, I don't know. I do know that in mainstream society, right, in general everyday life, when you point out somebody did a shoddy job on something or they did a bad job, they get very upset. They really don't like that. Um, and so you just kind of don't do it if you don't want to antagonize people. I don't. Um, and even when somebody wants feedback, you tend to be like, well, you know, good job, but, right? Um, furthermore, most people, when they screw up, aren't like, yep, I blew it. Um, they, they, I, the first inclination, I think, of majority of people is to, like, kind of just, like, hope nobody notices, right? Um, but then if they do want to own it, they, like, over-own it. They make a big deal out of it. So continuing, Grover said... You know, when a cleaner makes a mistake, he can look you in the eye and say, I fucked up. That's it. Confident, simple, factual, no explanation. You made a mistake? Fine. Don't explain it to me for an hour. The truth is one sentence. I don't need a long story. Right? So it's like kind of cool. So a lot of times the blunt thing, right, is like, what the hell were you thinking? This is going to like do so much damage, right? If, one of us says it to another one of us. The other person says, like, I wasn't thinking. I blew it and went too fast. What's next? Like, oh, okay. Then it's immediately dropped. There's no, like, you're actually not even lower in status or anything. It's, like, not a big deal, right? Um, I don't know exactly what makes an equestrian, by the way, because once I started to do this show, I realized that, like, you know, like the judge said, judge a learned hand on the Supreme Court, I know it when I see it. Right, but but rigorously defining it's kind of hard. Plebeian is relatively easy to define. Patrician is relatively easy to define. What sets an equestrian apart? Because it's not like being wealthy or, or or having cash in your pocket or having responsibility. Um, they correlate, but it's it's not it's not that per se. And the more I was thinking about it, I'm like, I, it's got to be some relationship to responsibility, hardship, something like that, and. 
you know, I thought one of the best ways to kind of understand it is, and this is the second edgy thing that we're going to do in the show or third. I don't know. This is, this is an edgy show is, you know, I, I lived in China for a number of years and I, I think there are more equestrians, mentally speaking, as a percent of the population in China than, than anywhere else I've been in the world. Like very equestrian culture now, not entirely, not entirely, but, but very much so. I was thinking about that and I'm like, how do we get into that and explain that, right? Because this can vary and this isn't like a, this is like a culture point, right? Um, I'm not saying that, you know, Chinese people that live in any given country are equestrians at a higher rate than the rest of the population. I just mean like literally mainland, mainland China. Um, I was kind of thinking about this and trying to figure out how to explain it. And I, I came across the current, current leader of China, Xi Jinping, um, I have you know, different articles that I save and I read and I kind of I try not to stay too up to date with current events. I actually prefer to read history, but I try to know a little bit about current events. And, you know, lately it's been a, a big thing um, in China. And there's, there's a bunch of news articles about it, about how Xi Jinping, the, the leader of China, the, the big boss in China, the paramount leader, used to live in a cave. Like literally, he lived in a cave. And I was trying to find a specific article I read, which was pretty good. So I Googled Xi Jinping cave. And first article is the, Xi Jin, the cave that Chinese president called home from the Telegraph in the UK. And the second one is from the BBC, Xi Jinping, the president who lived in a cave. And then the third one is the uh, is SCMP, was that South China Morning Post? Hyped pilgrimages to Xi Jinping's cave doing more. And the rest of the headlines cut off. Then the Irish Times, Xi Jinping power play leads from dusty caves. NPR from China's rising leader, a cave was once home. So I, I couldn't even find the article because there's just like every press publication in the whole world is talking about the fact that Xi Jinping used to live in a cave. But let's go through his background a little bit. This is from mainstream Wikipedia. And um, I don't know very much about Xi Jinping. I don't know anybody that's had any dealings with him. I don't really have any assessment of uh, him or his character um, beyond just what's available in mainstream sources. And uh, Chinese people that I talked to from China uh, seem to respect him tremendously. They seem to like him. He doesn't have the same level of um, really intense, uh, passionate popularity that, say, like uh, Duterte has in the Philippines, but seems to be quite popular among, among the Chinese people that I talk to. Um, I've talked to a few different people. They like, they like Xi Jinping. Um, but you look at his background, and hey, regardless, you know, whatever, you're, even if you're from somewhere that, you know, you think there's some rivalry or you don't like how he does things, I'm not talking about his political decisions. I'm not talking about his, his policies. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm just talking about him as a, as a man, him as a human. I can't help but admire him tremendously. I, I admire what he went through and endured to rise tremendously. So let's take a look at this. This is from his Wikipedia. I edited down a little bit so it's not, not super long. Um, but, but it's all just straight English Wikipedia on Xi Jinping as of October 2020. Um, here's from his early life. Xi Jinping was born in Beijing in 1953, the second son of Xi Shangshun. After the founding of the People's Republic in China in 1949 by Mao Zedong, Xi's father had a series of posts, including party propaganda chief, vice premier, and vice chairperson of the National People's Congress. Xi had two older sisters, kind of goes on through his background. The Xi family went to Beijing in the 1960s. In 1963, when he was age 10, Xi's father was purged from the party and sent to work in a factory in Hainan. In May 1966, the Cultural Revolution cut short Xi's secondary education when all secondary classes were halted for students to criticize and fight their teachers. Student militants ransacked the Xi family home, and one of Xi's sisters, Xi Heiping, committed suicide from the pressure. Later, his mother was forced to publicly denounce his father as he was paraded before a crowd as an enemy of the revolution. His father was later thrown into prison in 1968 when she was age 15. Without the protection of his father, she was sent to work in Shanxi in 1969 in Mao Zedong's Down to the Countryside movement. He lived in a cave house. After a few months unable to stand rural life, she ran away to Beijing. He was arrested during a crackdown on deserters from the countryside and sent to a work camp to dig ditches. After being rejected seven times, Xi joined the Communist Youth League of China in 1971 by befriending a local official. He reunited with his father in 1972 because of a family reunion ordered by Premier Zhao Enlai. Editor's note, by the way, Zhao Enlai is a freaking hero. I think he's one of just an incredibly admirable person and uh, 
worth, uh, I've written about him a little bit in the past, and I'll probably explore that later. What an amazing person. Um, continuing, from 1973, she applied to join the Chinese Communist Party 10 times and was finally accepted on his 10th attempt in 1974. From 1975 to 1979, she studied chemical engineering at Beijing's Tsinghua University as a quote-unquote worker-peasant-soldier student. Wow, right? Wow. Well, that's going to make you tough, right? Wow. I, I have a hard time even commenting on that. And you see very often, not always, not always, but very often people that survive backgrounds like that go on to become equestrians in my metaphorical whatever. Equestrian doesn't exist. It's a metaphor. That it is a cleaner or closer or any of these metaphors that we use. So you see, now some people, by the way, hardship breaks them. And they get, you know, whatever, heavy into alcoholism or drugs or they just burn out and lose it. And that's, you know, you wouldn't wish this on, on anyone. You wouldn't wish this on your worst enemy, right? You know, your, 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 your family becomes like the enemy of the state, your sister takes her own life, your mother's forced to denounce your father, you live in a cave, you're like going crazy, so you go to try to go back to the city, you know, whatever, you don't have, uh, I don't know if the hookah system existed then, but you don't have residence permits to live there, you get caught, now you're in manual labor, and you're like, wow, I want to get out of this, and I want to rise, um, how do I do it? So you just keep trying to join the different political groups, keep getting rejected, but eventually break through, and then, okay, whatever. Time to go study chemical engineering. Let's get on with it. Incredible, right? So why do I bring that up? I mean, I don't, I don't think Grover has ever written anything about national leaders, but I think if you asked him, I think he'd say Xi Jinping's a cleaner under his definition. And this doesn't mean, I think a lot of people conflate person that I like or person that I agree with, with like competent or excellent person. I'm not saying I like every equestrian. There's some, some people that are, you know, have different priorities than me and they're, they're not necessarily people I'd hang out with. It's, they're overwhel overwhelmingly almost only hang out with equestrians, but uh, that doesn't mean I automatically like any given equestrian. It doesn't mean I dislike anybody else, right? Those are just tend to be the people that I gel with um, and get along with. So you can see when you're, when you're able to synthesize this kind of pressure and hardship, probably because you went through it. Not necessarily. I don't think it's a requirement. Um, but, you know, if you decide you're going to get really good at anything, you're going to go through a lot of pressure. I mean, even if you had a very nice, idyllic, very comfortable life, if you say that you're going to try to become the very best at any sport, tennis or golf, or even not even a, to, on a professional level, but you're going to get really intense in a running or bodybuilding, or you're going to, you know, go into business or do something really difficult technically and try to master an understanding of, you know, uh, you know, back-end web development or, 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 you know, you're trying to do some difficult, um, you know, research and statistics or something really just like, really just kind of make taxes your brain and you really push yourself, you're going to go through a little bit of hardship. It's almost a certainty, right? Um, and then, you know, when you synthesize that, and like people that have very tough backgrounds kind of get this for better or worse, maybe for worse, but they get it kind of for free, right? And so, you know, when Grover says, you want to know the true sign of a, what he calls a cleaner, right, somebody that performs at the highest level, he feels no pressure when he screws up and has no problem admitting when he's wrong and shouldering the blame. When a cooler makes a mistake, he'll give you a lot of excuses but no solutions. When a closer makes a mistake, he finds someone else to blame. When a cleaner makes a mistake, he can look you in the eye and say, I fucked up. That's it. Confident, simple, factual, no explanation. You made a mistake? Fine. Don't explain it to me for an hour. The truth is one sentence. I don't need a long story. You tell me about how you messed up, take responsibility, now you've gained my trust. Right? So Grover talks about that onwards. Now, I, I will say these two things, right? In, in Chinese culture, there's a concept of guanxi, which is like relationships, but also there's various components of like harmony and face and you know, making sure you don't insult people. So it plays out a little differently in China. And of course, she is a national leader. I'm using that as kind of a stand-in for understanding that a lot of people that went through a lot of hardship um, and then we're able to synthesize that and rise up in the world are very, very, very tough people. Um, I could also think about my, my grandmother in the Great Depression in the United States, for instance, and, and you know, she was like stealing food when she was eight years old because she was starving, basically. She just did not have enough food, so she would like steal tomatoes um, to eat 
right? Very, very tough life. Um, her parents immigrated from Europe when Europe fell apart um, around World War One. Then you know whatever went off the rails. Very, very tough, tough lady, my grandmother. So you see that, and then yeah, the attitude of like, okay, you screwed up. Now I think here's where a lot of people that are equestrians go wrong. Maybe I used to do this a little bit, and I try not to anymore. Is you know again, Grovers, the cleaner equestrian are not the same thing. These are, are different things, even in our metaphors, but I think there's an overlap on this personal attribute. You know, Grover says, cleaners will just get in your face and announce that you fucked up. They're completely desensitized to criticism and blame, and they expect you to be the same. To you, it feels like an attack. To them, it feels like a couple of guys working out a solution. They're completely desensitized to criticism and blame. So this is the thing that I wanted to get across on this show. Right, and I now think I've done it. I have a couple more things to say, but I now think I've done it. Um, if you're wondering why somebody that seems to have your best interests at heart, and somebody might be a bully or a jerk, or they might be insecure if you're improving or whatever, so there's a, I'm not saying this is always this. I'm not saying whenever you get blunt criticism, it's good and the person's looking out for you. Not necessarily, right? But it's very easy, you know, for somebody that's completely desensitized to criticism and blame. Right? If I get criticized or blamed for something, I'm just going to flip through my head and be like, did I get that wrong? And if I did, like, okay, yeah, I got that wrong. No big deal. And if I didn't, I'd be like, no, nah, eh, no, not really. Either way, it's, I'm not going to get heated over it, like ever. Um, I encourage and prompt people that I respect and like and get along with to be like, hey, what am I getting wrong? What am I missing? What, what's next? What do I, right? And this is just kind of like how we operate. It's implicitly there. There's a time and a place for it. Um, you know, praise in public, criticize in private is always good advice or almost always um, the vast majority of the time, right? This doesn't mean that, you know, for about to, you know, go on stage at a conference, hey, you screwed that thing up. Like, well, hey, not now. <laughs> I got something to do, right? Um, but this is what, if you're not, you know, and like for, for people that are, are listening, you know, maybe you had, um, maybe your parents were that hard driving equestrian types. It can be nasty for kids, by the way. I, I really do understand and, and empathize, you know, if, you're, if, you're, if your dad or your mom is, Hey kids, sack it up, do this, do that. I mean, it, if it's temper with the right love, it's really good. But if it's not, it can you know, it takes people some 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 time to get over that when they when they get older sometimes. Um, but maybe where sometimes where it's really good is like if you have like an uncle or something. Like I, I had an uncle, one of my uh, my mother's younger brother, who went into business, and you know, just seeing how kind of he communicated, it's like hey, screwed that up. But it was like very friendly. He was like a very loving guy, uh, good guy. He passed away, he had cancer, um, but but he had a really cool life and a uh, lovely guy. Um, and, you know, I just, I, I do remember that, um, you know, is that he had just a very different mannerism, you know, whereas most people don't, don't have that mannerism, you know, right? If you're beyond criticism and blame and you're just seeking out solutions then you can be very blunt and the putting a sharp touch on it is to like flag to the person, in my opinion, that like, Hey, I want you to respond to this. So someone's like, what the hell is wrong with you? Like, why did you do this? First off, that person could be like a jerk and they could want to like hurt you or whatever. It's, it's totally happens. I'm not, maybe it's even the majority of it. But if somebody that you care about that's sharp, that is like an equestrian, says that and has your best interests in mind as demonstrated from the past, right? And, and they say like, what the hell is wrong with you? Why did you do this? The what the hell is wrong with you is just so it doesn't sound casual. So you're not like, right? It's like, hey, why did, so if someone's just like, hey, why'd you do this? It's like, oh, let me tell you, it's this and that. It's like, why the hell did you do this? What, 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 what was this? Right? That's like just, it's like a way to flag. Like, this is really quite bad. And they're like, yep, totally screwed that up. Da 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 da. Right? And you just own it. And it's like, not a big deal. As a side note with Grover, and what triggered me to look into the, uh, the, the thing, and it made me think of she, was, um, you know, this is the same chapter. This is just a couple pages um, before he talks about the criticism point. Um, was Grover talking about how some of these things get learned? And this is from. This is from the chapter, you know, when everyone is hitting the in case of emergency button, they all look for you, is the title of it. It was kind of an awkward title, but good chapter. And Grover wrote, I don't think you can really understand relentlessness until you've faced your worst fears and you've experienced that internal response telling you what to do. If you think back to the major events of your life, you can probably identify the things that impacted everything else and taught you what you were capable of dealing with. Like, okay, that sounds really reasonable. Sounds really nice. The, the key line in there is, um, 
until you've faced your worst fears and you've experienced that internal response telling you what to do, which might be right or might not, might not be right. It might be like a flee, whatever thing. You need to conquer that if you have the wrong one eventually, right? Escape, you know, fight or flight. If you get in a flight response, oftentimes that's wrong, right? Sometimes it's right, but right? So that's a nice paragraph, though. I don't think you understand relentlessness until you face your worst fears. This sounds nice. This sounds like plebeian advice, right? Like, oh, face your fears, right? This sounds nice. So Grover writes, you know, you can probably identify the things that impacted everything else and taught you what you were capable of dealing with. Then he continues. This is one of the ways I learned. My family came to the United States when I was four, and my father went to work in the basement of a hospital in Chicago, dismembering cadavers. When there was no school and both of my parents were working, he'd take me with him. I was five years old the first time I saw my father dismantle a corpse. When I was six, he handed me a bone saw and told me to help. His lesson to me, this is how a man provides for his family. That's how I learned. You figure it out. My parents are from India, and they moved to London after they were married. I was born there. My mother was a nurse, and my parents decided she would go to America to work because they wanted a better life for my brother and me. For a year, she lived alone in Chicago and the rest of us remained behind until she and my family finally, uh, until she and my father finally saved enough money for us all to be together. On the day we arrived in Chicago to be re reunited as a family, my dad got a cab at the airport, loaded up all our bags and possessions, and we headed toward the city. But a few miles from our destination, he suddenly told the cab to stop. We got out, unloaded all the bags, and started walking, just two little boys who had no idea what was going on, and our dad making it sound as if we were on this great adventure seeing the city on foot. But the truth was, he didn't have enough money to go any further by cab, so he carried the bags and walked. He was a dad in a new country with two little boys and no money in his pocket. Figure it out, I learned. So there you have it. So there you have it. Um, I had some other points. I had some other points which uh, I was going to hit, but I, I, think, I think we're mostly done. I'll say, I'll say one thing about bad manners. Um, you need to have good manners, and, and Paul Graham made, an article, uh, made a point in the article, do things that don't scale, right? And he, he said, you know, why, why, do, why do a lot of technical startup founders like not get good at customer service and sales and creating great experience? And he said that, you know, quote, one of the things that a lot of start, one of, one, of, one of the reasons is that a lot of startup founders are trained as engineers and customer service is not part of the training of engineers. You're supposed to build things that are robust and elegant, not be slavishly attentive to individual users like some kind of salesperson. Ironically, part of the reason engineering is traditionally averse to handholding is that its traditions date from a time when engineers were less powerful, when they were only in charge of their narrow domain of building things rather than running the whole show. You can be ornery when you're Scotty, but not when you're Kirk. But I think that's a really interesting line. Ironically, part of the reason engineering is traditionally averse to all the soft people stuff is that its traditions date from a time when engineers were less powerful, when they were only in charge of their narrow domain of building things rather than running the whole show. Yeah, because we're in a world that increasingly the equestrians and engineers are disproportionately equestrians because it's not I don't know exactly what it is it's not just about hardship or overcoming or responsibility it's something about the ability to like manage manage your emotions and your way of seeing the world and and and, and perception um I don't know I, I I have a hard time rigorously defining like I know when I see it but I have a hard time rigorously like writing it in propositional logic what uh what moves you from plebeian to equestrian like I don't I don't know exactly I, I know what it looks like um, but I don't know exactly. Um, and then patrician is when your goals and instincts shift. Most patricians are also quite competent, by the way. Some of them are hilariously, or, or so I hear, are hilariously helpless at certain things. I hear that. I don't, I don't, haven't, all patricians I've met are really good at what they do. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know exactly what the difference is. But, you know, you hear about she in the cave. You hear about Grover parents get from India to London, right? That would have been, don't know exactly how old he is, but he was training Michael Jordan, so he would have been an adult in the 80s, so maybe in the 60s, probably Commonwealth passport visa to England somehow, maybe. And then from there, they thought England was in the decline, 
America was happening. So they get over to Chicago. Mom is a nurse, goes first, probably live in a terrible tiny little place with six roommates just to save money so the whole family can come over, the two boys. Dad stays in London with the two boys and mom goes over. That's kind of interesting, like respect to his family. So he would have been a, a dad raising his two boys in London by himself as an Indian guy, right? I, I imagine that he, he anglicized his name, Grover, but I, I don't know, maybe that's, a, that's an Indian name as well. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, they go over. Go over from London to Chicago. Gets in a taxi, doesn't realize how much it's going to cost in UST. Has to get out. Wow, I got $40 in my pocket and... Meter says 38 right now, can't go any further. Walks a couple miles with all their bags and all their possessions. Goes to work as a, a guy dismembering corpses. And sometimes they don't have a babysitter and they're poor. So he brings his son with him to work. Whoa. And then he's like, son, that's how I provide for my family. Give it a try. Not advocating any of this. I don't, I don't. Some people are like, hey, kids should get more responsibility and should grow up faster and be tougher and whatever. I, I think this is far beyond any of that. I, I, it's going to either make you like Grover where you're intense or I, I think this could screw some people up, right? So probably bifurcate the results of people a lot. But the whole part of this show started with like why are, why are sometimes people that are otherwise quite good at what they do, and it might be looking out for you. Why will they give you very blunt, sometimes hurtful criticisms? And the answer is that it's not hurtful. The criticisms don't seem like they'd hurt. They're unable to, um, they're, they're maybe unable to empathize, right? You know, Grover saw his dad, and I mean, what a cool guy, Grover's dad, right? In a situation that would be humiliating to many people. We're out of money, we're gonna have to schlep our bags into Chicago right? He, he does a good job with his kids of turning into an adventure. And his, his son figures out later that they were out of money. No, literally no money in a new country. And like he gets a job in the basement of a hospital. And they don't have a babysitter and they don't know anybody. They don't have a trusted family network. So it's like brings his son to the basement. Wow. You know, it's, like, wow. Right? And I think it's more or less, I don't know if it's a prerequisite or if just the other parts of getting to thinking like and acting like and, and, and behaving like and serving as an equestrian, so to speak, I, I don't know if it's a prerequisite to not get heated when you get criticized or blamed. I don't know if that's like a requirement or if it's like comes from something else where like you have like an overcoming or a problem solving mindset and then criticism just slots in as a secondary characteristic. I'm not sure, but I am sure that the vast majority of people that I would call equestrians, it's a metaphor calling on the, the Roman Republic SPQR. Obviously it's not, you know, we're not knights that, that are gonna go defend the Republic on horseback anymore. It's a metaphor. Um, and, you know, quite technical and doesn't think that it's uh, dishonorable to work with money. Like, uh, you know, like a lot of the patricians, they want to own, you know, their landed estates in the old days and they don't want to, don't want to work on the estates or trade or whatever. There's like certain things that are honorable, owning stuff and not, not trading and doing stuff per se. Um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's a prerequisite to being an equestrian that like criticism just doesn't heat you. It's just not about blame or shame or whatever. Or if that's like a secondary thing of having a problem solving mindset, I'm not sure. I'm really, um, really don't know. Um, and the rigorous definitions are hard to find. I'm not saying that this is a license to go be a jerk to people, just the opposite. I think if anything, the, a lot of engineers, a lot of people had tough backgrounds, a lot of people are really tough, maybe a little too blunt with people that don't want it and don't respond to it. Right. It's, it's a, Questions are not not a huge percentage of the world, not quite as rare as patricians, but it's not not so many, not so many. And you know, everybody, uh, you know, vast majority of people want to just be told nice things. They don't want facts. They don't want to feel bad. They don't want to, you know, whatever. Um, I, I don't think they realize that we don't feel bad under criticism. 
right? It's like, just okay, good, it's data. I mean, you're either right or you're wrong, right? And so that's data. And okay, whatever. I mean, this isn't universally true. People have their, their little insecure spots that they get heated about, right? Um, and I'm certainly not saying that if somebody's very blunt and, and, and critical that, they're, that that means they're on your side. Not at all. A lot of people are not. Right? A lot of times people, someone gets jealous and they want to tear somebody down or maybe someone's just a jerk and I just like make, making people feel bad and I kind of like want to poke at them or poke at their weak spots a little bit. Not to help them level up, not to show them the light really quickly, but just because they're a jerk. So don't, don't take the wrong lessons from this by any stretch of the imagination. I am simply trying to explain that one phenomenon of like why among a certain group of people, you know what I'm talking about, a lot of engineers, a lot of business people, a lot of people that are very direct, right? Like why are those people so like, hey, here's how it is. Why'd you do that? That was wrong. No, it's because they, they don't feel. They don't feel that, you know, that, that pain sense, that, you know, whatever sense, as Grover says, you know, he has no pressure. He feels no pressure when he screws up, which is incredible, by the way. He's like, oh, I screwed up. What? Whatever, I missed a shot. And has no problem admitting when he's wrong and shouldering the blame. When a cleaner makes a mistake, he can look you in the eye and say, I fucked up. That's it. Confident, simple, factual, no explanation. You made a mistake? Fine. Don't explain it to me for an hour. The truth is one sentence. I don't need a long story. Should you cultivate these attributes? I don't know. I think you either already are or are not, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. Listening to this show is probably a good sign. Not flattering, even a plebeian sense. I actually think this is somewhat unique, what we do here. Um, and I, I think that metaphor won't resonate with everybody. I know a lot of, um, I've got a lot of friends that are in, you know, uh, pretty advanced sciences. I could see a physicist friend of mine being like, I'm not a equestrian, I'm not a plebeian, I'm not a, like I can see somebody saying, hey, I don't resonate. All good, just a metaphor. Um, but I do think there's something about, people go through a lot of hardship um, and doesn't really, doesn't really heat them um, and gets to a point where it's all just data, it's all just logical. So I'm not saying every time it, there's criticism, it's well-intentioned. I'm certainly not encouraging this level of bluntness and directness with people that don't opt into it. This is both a breach of decorum in very high society and it's offensive and hurtful uh, in the mainstream. So it's just in our little little pocket of equestrianness, but I am explaining it and you know people can, can opt into it if they want to. Um, and then that's not even, you can't even opt into it instantly. It's kind of like a built-in, built trust over time, at least for me, um, that's, that's how I operate. Um, but hopefully this gets your mind around it a little better so that if you're already among people giving blunt criticism, you realize that most people are not like you. Most people are not Xi Jinping growing up in a cave. Most people are not Tim Grover coming over from London with his dad and they run out of money and they're schlepping their bags into the city. Um, and then he's going with his dad to work and his work is no joke. Um, yeah, these are things to think about. And increasingly, equestrians are increasingly important. As Paul Graham said, you know, part of the reason that... Uh, Engineering is traditionally averse to hand-holding and being nice and not being a jerk, right? Traditionally averse to hand-holding, right? The engineer is very blunt. Is that its traditions date from a time when engineers were less powerful, when they were only in charge of their narrow domain of building things rather than running the whole show. Interesting, right? Give it some thought. Um, I think this is becoming an increasingly important uh, point in the world. I think it's very useful to understand the intentions and mentality um, if there's somebody in your life that cares about you, um, but is very blunt and direct with you, that does not mean, if someone's very blunt and direct, that does not mean they care about you, that doesn't mean they're a good person. I'm just saying, if they also care about you and, and are on your side and are a good person and competent, and then they're very direct with you, that's why. It's because it don't, probably doesn't heat them when you give the same back to them. Um, and then if you're already doing this, if you're very blunt, very direct, um, you know, you're in business, you're an engineer, you're, a, you know, you're a, in finance, whatever, some very direct culture, then yeah, you know, maybe maybe modulate that. Think about your policies around that. Think about how direct you are, because it's yeah, it's not the rest of it's not how the whole world operates. I think it'd be a good thing if the whole operate world operated like this, but it would also require like a pro sociality, um, a looking out for people and wanting people to succeed. Because you don't want to give like just bullies a license to be a jerk to people and to push on their weaknesses for no reason, not to help them evolve, not to shine a light for them, but to just be a jerk. So nuanced topic. Out of context, quoting is prohibited. Offenders will be, uh, I was going to make a hang, drawn, and quartered joke, but that's 
it's a little too much, but uh, but don't quote me out of context or missummarize me, please. Um, very much appreciated. So I'll kind of explore these difficult areas um, a little bit. I think it's relevant sometimes. Yeah, have a think about this stuff. Um, I'm, I'm sure you're able to think of a person or two with somebody that's that's very direct. That you know when they screw up, no problem admitting when wrong and shouldering the blame. You know, can just look at you and say I screwed up and doesn't talk about it for an hour and like, oh no, I'm so sorry, but just like, hey, it screwed up this, this, and this. And then the flip side where we open the whole show, you know, one of these people will just get in your face and announce that you fucked up. They're completely desensitized to criticism and blame and they expect you to be the same. To you, it feels like an attack. To them, it feels like a couple of guys working out a situation. Their confidence level is so high, they have no problem admitting when something has gone wrong. Give it some thought. Um, it's a pleasure as always. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ultra Working Podcast and uh, SPQR and whatnot. Godspeed. <laughs>